0: Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome friends to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had the opportunity to connect with Dr. Wade Mullen this week. Wade is a professor and researcher at Capitol Seminary and Graduate School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Wade also serves as an advocate working to help those trapped in the confusion and captivity that mark abusive situations. His personal experiences and ongoing research enable him to write with both care and expertise about this very important topic. His book, entitled Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power, is available from Tyndale. On this week's episode, Wade and I talk about recognizing abuse, specifically coercive and manipulative abuse, within the church and other organizations. Wade shares some of the patterns abusers use, including impression management, and what we can do if we feel we are experiencing abuse ourselves. We also discuss how churches can appropriately respond to allegations of abuse. This is an important topic that we hope will encourage further discussion. So please join me in my conversation with Wade Mullen. Wade, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's a joy to have you with us today. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be on. Excellent. Now, you have spent um, a lot of time, uh, energy, um, brain cells, I think, researching um, as you worked on your doctorate and as you uh, wrote this, this uh, new book, Something's Not Right. Uh, you have spent a lot of time looking at this idea of abuse and, and specifically how, how those in, in power can abuse um, those who have less power. And you've looked at it you know, in, in regard to within the church, you know, you've studied, I, I think I, I read that you'd studied over a thousand cases of abuse in churches um, as you're working on your doctoral dissertation and as you are doing research for this book. Whenever we talk about an issue like this, um, there are oftentimes, you know, different, different perspectives. Some people um, think that abuse is um, in some ways overblown, that you know, just anytime something doesn't go right, someone it can cry abuse. On the other side, people think that abuse is covered up way too often, and, and I'm sure that, that's, that somewhere there's, there's a balance in there, and your research has probably shown that. But you talk about your own experience and how you were um, broadsided by abuse in a way while serving as a youth pastor at a church and how uh, kind of the way you describe it is you didn't think of it as kind of abuse initially, which I think is kind of um, what many of us kind of default to. We think of abuse and, you know, we think of physical abuse or, you know, severe abuse, um, sexual abuse, perhaps those types of things. But can you talk to us a little bit about um, kind of your realization that you had been abused and what that experience was like?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, many of us have this perception of abuse that is limited to, some kind of violent offense, whether it's physical or sexual in nature. And what I come to realize over time was that it's much broader than that. I think abuse is a very basic form, is simply using someone or something wrongly. And, And there are many ways in which somebody can be abused in the context of an interpersonal relationship. And so for me, I reached a point when I was at the church where I realized that um, I'm so lost. Um, I'm surrounded by a lot of deception uh, coming from people that are in positions of trust, coming from leaders. And I also found that I was in a place where I felt very trapped, like I couldn't free myself from the situation that I was in. So I think those are two of the main ingredients of abuse. Uh, It's the experience of feeling confused where you reach a point of just saying, I don't know what's normal anymore. I don't know what's true. Uh, And then also feeling the sense of captivity. I I don't know what to do. I don't know who to turn to everywhere I turn there are, there, there are walls. And so for me, In the church uh, situation that I was in, um, I reached a point where I had been fighting for truth to be exposed and trying to shine a light and thinking that surrounded by well-meaning people uh, who are seeking to follow Christ, well-meaning leaders who are seeking to follow Christ, and surely once they hear uh, what is happening, uh, what has happened, some of the trauma that people have experienced and the ways in which it's been covered up, that they would respond with a desire to uh, act with righteousness and to report these things to the police and and to show compassion. And I, I was stunned when I discovered the opposite uh, was true and then was in this place of Uh, becoming a target myself. And so I remember, I mean, this was years that I was in this situation, and I remember recounting um, my story to two different individuals on two separate occasions. And the first time I reached out to somebody in an external agency looking for help, and there was a woman on the phone. I didn't know who she was, and I just wanted to throw my story out there and see what an external – Agency would say, and I, I prefaced it by you know I, I told my story and then I said I don't want to get anybody in, 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 into trouble and that was you know the place I was at I was still in this mm. place of fear and she responded with anger in her voice and said well you shouldn't have to live like that and I just mm. started crying on the phone because it was the first time that I had shared my story and somebody heard it and validated my experience and then there was another occasion when. Um, my wife and I were meeting with some dear friends of ours. And it was one of the only times, you know, while we were at the church where we were able to just share our story in an unrushed way and explain all that was happening to us. And at the end of those hours of sharing uh, late into the night, a friend of ours just said, this is abuse. And, and I had to sit with that for some time, but I but I came to realize that she was speaking truth into my life, and I needed to hear that.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because as you kind of describe uh, your experience, Wade, and, and of course from your research, it seems that um, the way that you have have come to define abuse, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just trying to you know listen and and, and kind of see see how you're speaking here. Is when there's a form of of um manipulation in some way right so someone mm-hmm. has has power over you and they're kind of manipulating you in a way that is uh, to their own benefit is is that would that be kind of an accurate way to to summarize how you define abuse
1: Yeah and I think a good analogy is the analogy of a trap uh, where somebody is setting a trap and hoping that you walk into that trap so that they can own you in a sense they can control you. Uh, so that you end up acting according to their agenda for your life. And, and so that can, that can happen um, through various techniques of deception and manipulation, uh, various techniques of coercion, and you realize often uh, before it's too late that, okay, I'm, I'm in this trap, and I don't know how I got here, but it's not right. Uh, it's having an impact on my life and on my health and my well-being, and I can't seem to get out of this.
0: Yeah, so um, one of the things that you uh, begin to, to describe and you write about in your book, Something's Not Right, is this idea of impression management and how abusers kind of use this tactic when they are manipulating, when they're deceiving. Can you talk to us a little bit about this idea of impression management?
1: Yeah, so impression management is simply shaping people's perception of yourself or of something that you want them to believe about your institution or whatever it might be. But impression management is putting up a front Uh, for example, so that other people like and accept you. So a a very common example of impression management being used is when somebody flatters you. Um, When somebody says something that feels good, um, perhaps they remark um, how uh, you're better than um, the rest. you know you're some someone might say to you, you know you work harder than anybody that I've ever known. that kind of thing. And it might be true, but often there's flattery embedded in that. And what it's designed to do is to get you to look upon the person who's saying that with greater favor and with greater liking. So the person who's using impression management like flattery isn't actually, speaking for your good, but, there's, but they're shaping your perception of them, and often is using deception in order to accomplish that, that, that goal. Because if you can get the other person, for example, to like you more through tactics of deception, like flattery, then they're more likely to um, give in to a demand, or when the time comes, often to Uh, ask that person to do something uh, especially in an abusive relationship where somebody might be asked to cross a boundary um, or to engage in a behavior that they that they don't want to actually engage in but the abuser has ingratiated that person has groomed that person through charm and through nice words and all of a sudden they find that okay um this person has so been so nice to me. I feel like I need to reciprocate this. I feel like I need to um, do this favor that this person is, is asking of me.
0: Yeah, I, and I think way that the um, as, as I'm listening to you talk through that, um, I think one of the challenges is that um, there are also people in our lives that are sincere. <laughs> you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. and encouraging. You know, yes. and 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 they're there to support us and encourage us. And so um, the challenge. Is then discerning, and uh, not, I guess, not um, defaulting to a, a, a super skeptical um, and cynical outlook, where you think everyone around you um, who says something positive could indeed be kind of trying to set you up or deceive you, as you've talked about. So, how do we how do we kind of process through that in a healthy way, um, so that it doesn't Um, you know, negatively impact what can be very healthy and wholesome relationships?
1: Yeah, well, I I think it starts with asking the question, what's true? You know, as I listen to this person, perhaps praise me or compliment me or praise other people, I think it's legitimate to ask the question, is what this person saying? True? Is it true? Um, It may be nice, but is it true? And if it's not true, then why did that person feel the need to exaggerate, um, for, for for example, and then also I think you need to wait often to see if there are other tactics of impression management or deceptive behaviors that you see in that person's uh, relationship with you. So for example, the person who's flattering you um, might also Behave in ways that are intimidating. Um, and so, let's say, for example, you really believe that this person is trying to trick you into doing something uh, that they want you to do, but you don't really want to do. It's not really in your best interest or it's not right. Well, what happens when you say no? Do they use past favors against you? Do they say, well, you know, after all I've done for you, uh, you're going to say no to me. You're not going to do this one little thing that I'm asking you to do. Okay, so that's, a, in my mind, a, a deception uh, that is very revealing. And so you're discovering that perhaps the flattery wasn't actually sincere. Perhaps it was simply being used to coerce me. And now here comes the ask. Here I'm being asked to do something. And if I say no, This person who once charmed me all of a sudden is becoming angry or is making me feel fearful. Like, what is that? And so charm can very quickly transform into anger if the person is being deceptive and just trying to coerce you. So you kind of have to wait to see this pattern of behavior over time.
0: Right, right. So the um, kind of discernment comes from ongoing experience with this particular person, you know, ongoing relationship, watching how they not only treat you, but maybe treat others. And, and as you said, you know, does it seem like there's something, you know, something beneath what they're saying? One, one of the questions that comes to mind is that it seems, and and I know you wrote about this, that abusers often have kind of a pattern. It seems like they're, I think you said reading from the same playbook almost because Mm -hmm. they, they tend to have this ongoing pattern. And a lot of that is, you know, deception. So, um, how, I guess it it seems like it's, you know, especially those who have been abusing for a long time, they have kind of created this pattern. They know this deception. And if, for lack of a better term, they've become good at it, right? Mm -hmm. So, how can we best protect ourselves? I think, especially when we're talking like um, being in the church and ministry positions, those types of things, how can we best protect ourselves from? Someone who might be an a, abuser. Whenever when we step into ministry, we're oftentimes trying to look for the best in others and trying to take and encourage people um, for God's best for their life. And so there's there's kind of it seems like a challenge there in kind of discerning that. So you know, what? Where are some practical things that we should take into account in in these relationships um, in ministry?
1: That's a good question. I th- I think the most practical thing that we can do. To protect ourselves from deception just breeding and becoming worse and worse, is speaking truth in love at the first sign of deception. So, for example, one of the common techniques of impression management is to promote yourself, self promotion. And so, a church leader who perhaps is finding Their identity and success of their church might exaggerate how many people are attending their church, and they use that as a measure of success. And so, other staff people might hear that pastor exaggerate how many people are actually attending the church, but not actually say anything when they hear that. And I think that is allowing the deception then to breed. And what what a person can do is say, "Okay, I'm hearing you um, throughout this number." and i just want to i just want to ask a clarifying question because last i looked or based on what i know our numbers are actually this and then see how that person responds and so i think that's just a small example of just speaking the truth in love and and then what i've often found is that the person who is promoting themselves perhaps for narcissistic reasons is perhaps charming, other, very charming, charming other people, but doing that in a way to coerce them um, is uh, perhaps uh, lying at different points, maybe in ways that aren't kind of outright that somebody can point out and say, no, that's a lie, but you know that, okay, they're kind of fudging things. That person often will be very defensive if they're called out or if they're challenged in some way. And so that's when I think truth and love really needs to be really needs to be put into practice, so that when a person who is deceptive and and trying to um, trick people is confronted, often that person who's deceptive will use all these different defenses I talk about in the book, like different kinds of excuses and justifications. And we, we can quickly back off when we hear that. And, and I think the challenge, and it's a very practical thing, is to, is to check people on that and to say, well, wait a minute, let's slow down. Um, you're saying that, you know, you had no idea uh, that this was happening, you were behaving in this way. Or you're saying that, you know, someone else is to, bl- is to blame. So we just have to slow down. And in those moments when we hear defenses, be willing to speak the truth in love and and often that's going to be a revealing time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, and wait as you talk through that I think I think that's important and and healthy not just for, you know, ministry relationships, staff relationships, whatever it might be, but, but also because a person might be acting out in those types of ways for for from other reasons, right? It may not necessarily mean that they're um, an abusive person. They may have real struggles with you know, just their own confidence or right. feel, you know, I mean, there could be other underlying right. issues, but if we just kind of, you know, go on with life and don't speak in truth, as you said, then, you know, regardless if it's an abusive, you know, uh, or kind of relationship or someone who's, who's going to be abusive, there's still some sort of hurt or brokenness in the midst there that, mm-hmm. you know, those of us who have committed our lives to following Jesus and, and serving the kingdom and ministering that, that we want to help our brothers and sisters, you know, process through in healthy ways. So I guess what I'm saying is regardless, as you were saying that, you know, it's this idea that when we do just kind of, you know, give things a pass, we're not really doing anyone a favor, whether it ends up being something that's abusive or just some some other hang up or some other brokenness that someone's wrestling with, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, and those small deceptions, I think, will continue to worsen. And, and that can eventually devolve into more severe types of behavior that cause people injury because mm. the deceptive person is going to keep learning that script and is, is going to over time discover what works and what doesn't work. You know, I can get away with saying this and people right. are going to check me on this. And then eventually they get lost in that deception, in that web of deceit, and they can very, easily begin to just see everybody around them as objects to be coerced and tricked. And then also that can lead them to real damaging kind of behavior. Like all of mm-hmm. a sudden they realize, you know, I don't know who I'm becoming, but now I'm lashing out at this person. Now I'm threatening this person. Now I'm acting out in anger. Now, you know, so it can over time devolve into more serious types of, of uh, abuse and behavior that can really cause injury to people. And you can trace it back sometimes, you know, years ago and and you say, well, you know, something seemed off at that point, you know, something right. was up, you know, okay, well, this this developed over time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Let me ask you, wait, in, in your research and just in, in your work, you know, um, with, with churches and ministry leaders, why do you think it is that there are oftentimes, I, I don't necessarily want to say oftentimes, but more times than that should be, let's say that for sure, that within the church, there are ministry leaders who are kind of abusive in these ways, who are deceptive, who are coercive, who are manipulative. Why does that that show up in, in the place that we would hope and think it would not show up in so often?
1: I don't know. I mean, there's so much um, that we don't know. And there's so many questions like that that I have, especially the how does this happen kind of question. But I think there are two common scenarios that, that, that I've observed. One is the scenario in which a person actually sets out to start a church as a way of meeting their own need for control. And so that is an abusive person who is forming a community around them that is inherently abusive and uh, deceptive from the very beginning. So the church is kind of like a kind kind of a front. That's so yeah, I've seen let, that. Let me right? jump
0: in real quick, right there, Wade, because as you're saying that, just to clarify, and you're not necessarily talking. I mean. In our minds, oftentimes we'll go to some sort of cult-like figure. You know, when when you say that, like someone who's who's really creating that, but but it's not necessarily some some wild cult-like figure. Uh, this can be, you know, someone who's you know starting a church or going into ministry who just has um, that need for control and sees that as a vehicle, right?
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. So, or you know, it's all about them, you know, and they what they see themselves doing is standing before a crowd. And, and I've talked to young men who are wanting to be in ministry and have asked them the question, why do you want to do this? And I've heard some, some scary responses, some mm. who have said, you know, I just have a, this dream of being in front of a crowd. And uh, you know, so it's this vision that they have of, of greatness uh, hmm. and they want to pursue that. And perhaps they see other models out there, and they see other celebrity pastors, leaders on a stage, on TV, and there's something in them that says, I want that. And maybe if I just start my own church, I can get that too. And so I I, I don't think it's just the cult leader who's doing that. I think um, the um, the person who simply wants a a – a crowd, perhaps, to praise them, or they just want some kind of uh, control over other people. Might see a church as a means to get that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so you said there's so that's one one that you've kind of seen and witnessed in your research, but there's there's another another example as well.
1: Yeah. So I think there's also those who start out with a sincere desire to serve people that they believe God has called them to serve. Um, but over time, uh, perhaps because of various experiences, or bec- perhaps because they neglect their own um, soul and their own uh, health, uh, mm-hmm. they begin over. T- they over time begin to see uh, their church, their ministry, as something that uh, they need to control. Uh, that they need to have complete power over. So it becomes their own kingdom. And so over time, they begin to rule with a heavier hand, and they begin to manipulate in order to maintain that maintain that control. And so I've seen that as well, where somebody starts out perhaps with a sincere desire to serve well and to serve with integrity, but over time, I, it becomes something very different.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, you describe this um and this kind of alliance here the the sacred roles and and how those are you know vulnerable to abuse. Can you talk to us a little bit about that idea of the sacred role?
1: yeah, I, t- I talk about how in these uh, a lot of faith communities we we see the need to establish some kind of sacred role, like the pastor, the prophet, the priest the anointed person, the leader of the community, and we center everything around that single person. So I use the analogy of a keystone at the top of an arch, and everything uh, is, is contingent on that keystone remaining in place. And so we can establish roles in our communities that I think we give inordinate amount of power to And because the entire system in some cases is built around a single sacred role, the community can feel this need to protect that role at all costs so that even if a pastor is abusing people uh, under his care, the community might um, suspect that or know that and yet look, look away or cover it up not only because they don't want to perhaps bring shame upon the pastor but they don't want to bring shame upon the role itself. Mm. And so there's this dynamic where it's not just about the individual but it's about this role. Like we don't want to bring shame to the pulpit. We don't want to bring shame upon this uh, upon this church. And so I think we really need to think through how we are structuring our faith communities. And whether or not we really should be um, placing so much power in a single person. Because the other thing that happens then, as I've mentioned earlier, is you you do have those that are out there looking for those sacred roles, looking Mm. for those keystone positions from which they can exercise their power, from which they can achieve their own um, desires to be seen and loved and adored and have all this power for 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 themselves so then you have a system that has created a need for a sacred role or a keystone person and you then you have people out there in the landscape looking for that kind of kind of position
0: so what other like alternative systems you know within the church wade have you seen that um can be a healthier or, or what type of things need to be put in place to make sure, ensure that it stays healthy?
1: Yeah, I'm really intrigued by uh, just the growing amount of, of um, emphasis that I'm seeing on shared leadership, mm-hmm. where you might have a church that has uh, multiple pastors uh, who have equal authority. Um, I also think that uh, the board uh, is plays a critical role And I think one of the ways that we can help churches become safer places is by helping boards understand the significance of their role um, and know how to keep, you know, if that church does have a pastor um, in in a single kind of role at the top, a senior pastor kind of CEO model, then there are ways to keep that power in check, but it's, it's very important that the board knows the importance of that and how to go about doing that. And so often you have a compliant board who is allowing the senior pastor, let's say, to get away with all kinds of behaviors because they're no longer providing the kind of checks that they need to.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and you bring up boards and you know uh, ministry leaders with, within a church that may not necessarily be a staff pastor. And what I find interesting is that this idea of of manipulation, abuse, coercion—it's um, it, not always from the pastor. Um, I, I've seen instances where you know key families in a church or board mm-hmm. members. Um, are, are the ones who are kind of being abusive. Can you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, kind of how to, to how to recognize and even navigate to some degree as pastors whenever we see that they're actually people, families, you know, whether it's individuals um, who kind of, you know, hold the keys to the church and manipulate. Are there some things that we can do to recognize that and to navigate that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of boards have a bully on the board and it may not be the senior pastor. Um, And I think some of the same principles apply, you know, that as a community, uh, we have expectations of people and say that, you know, we have boundaries. Uh, We there are behaviors that we think, you know, every person, especially people in a position of power and authority, uh, ought, ought to be displaying. And so the, the bully who's on the board or the bully who's in the ch- church or on the committee or whatever the context is, I think the community still has an obligation to protect itself from behaviors that are damaging to the community, irrespective of who the person is. And so, uh, It's helping people understand, I think, how to identify behaviors that are abusive and then how to confront those behaviors in a way that is loving but also Mm -hmm. truthful and will result in in, in a safer future.
0: Wait, if someone listening feels like they may be experiencing abuse, what is the first thing that you recommend they do?
1: I'd recommend that you seek out um, a competent uh, drama-informed professional, uh, somebody who has heard other stories of those who have been abused and has that kind of experience to be able to respond with truth and with love and, and care, somebody who doesn't see your story as a threat, uh, somebody who can listen and not rush you through it or over it. And somebody who also understands that often, you know, when you've gone through abuse, the telling of your story is very difficult and, and sometimes you can't even tell it in a way that uh, you think makes sense to the other person, but a good therapist can, can help unravel all of those threads and, and put that, put those pieces, pieces together And so I think that that would be um, my main encouragement is, is there somebody that you can tell your story to? Um, And if you're not ready to tell your story to somebody else, then I would suggest finding a way to tell your story to yourself, um, to take an inventory of of what's true. And that's what abuse often doesn't, uh, allow us to do, you know, the people who in our lives who are trying to control us will cause us to doubt our own sense of reality. And so, even if somebody's at a place where they say, I think this is abuse, that's a huge step mm. um, because you're conditioned into believing that this is what normal is. And so, if somebody reaches a place of saying, No, I think I'm not, I think this isn't right, uh, then if you're not willing to talk to somebody else yet, or that's not a safe thing to do, or you don't know who that might be, then Perhaps just sit down, and it can be very difficult. It all depends on what the experience has, has, has been, but to uh, take an inventory of what's of what's true about your experience.
0: Yes, that's really helpful. Wade, um, as we're kind of winding down our conversation here today, uh, you have the ears of pastors and ministry leaders. Um, any, any other thoughts that you'd like to, to leave with them?
1: I'd like them to consider that... There are many, many people who have suffered tremendous harm and have gone through experiences that no person should have to go through. And I believe that in every church, there are people with untold stories and there are people with, with, um, hurts that the leadership just is, isn't aware of. And for them to, to keep that in mind and to ask the question, how, how are we going to love people well who have suffered um, from so much evil? Hmm. Even if we don't know of that, even if we haven't heard their stories, we just know that they're there and then when they do tell their story who are we going to be when we hear their story don't wait until you, you know, a story is told an allegation is brought forth and all of a sudden people are are left wondering could this really be true this couldn't happen here and they become defensive no understand that this is happening and and, and it very it, it is happening in your church so think through ahead of time, how are we going to, what does it look like for us to care well and respond well when a survivor decides to share their story with us?
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much um, for spending some time with us today, talking through this much, much needed conversation. And again, I want to remind our listeners um, about your book. It's entitled Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and freeing yourself from its power. And so we encourage people to check that out. And Wade, if they, um, as they're listening in, they, they want to dig more deeply, of course, they can go in and read the book. But is there are there ways that they can connect with you or contact you as well? Um, or any ministries that you're engaged with right now that could be helpful?
1: Yeah, I have a website, uh, wadetmullen.com that they can visit and uh, there's a form on there that they can submit if they'd like to reach out to me. And then I'm very active on on Twitter, and my handle is Wade Mullen. Uh, and then you know there's there are plenty of organizations out there uh, that are are doing some really good work. Grace, Godly response to abuse in the Christian environment uh, is is one that I one that I really respect.
0: Excellent, excellent. And for our listeners, we will have all of those links, including a link to the book. Um, in the show notes for this episode so you can check out those show notes uh, for more information Wade thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us today and for all your work in in this area um, and your voice in the church and how you are helping us navigate some of these very very challenging things so thank you
1: Thank you Jason I'm grateful for the conversation and ho- hope it's helpful
0: Excellent brother God bless you Alright thanks Jason Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcasts at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out Faith Play. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com.